Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello, and welcome to episode 16 of the Burning Books podcast, where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, I'm going to a place, a literary place, to which I thought I might never return, later 19th century Russia. And the person who's bringing me back is one who was chiefly responsible for driving me away in the first place, driving me away in a fiery troika. That person, Leo Tolstoy. Today, we're going to look at his short story, The Devil. It was published in 1899 and most recently translated by Pavir and Volokonsky in 2009. We say short story, but as you might expect, Tolstoy's short stories, with few exceptions, are not short. Rather, they fall into that under-recognized category of long short story, too prodigious for a short story proper, but a few plot turns shy of a novella, which itself can best be defined as nothing. The novella cannot properly be defined, and neither can Tolstoy's short stories. The best we can do is try to describe them. Before reading The Devil, I had read two of Tolstoy's most famous shorter works, The Death of Ivan Ilyich and The Kreutzer Sonata. It was the death of Ivan Ilyich which had, in tandem with the nightmare known as the Brothers Karamazov, switched me off completely from that period of Russian literature, or at least so I swore at the time. True, I love Gogol and Nabokov, but the former predated the period, and the latter not only postdated it, he's considered by many not to be a Russian writer having lived, composed, and set so many of his works outside the motherland. But then the disease, the anti-Russian literature disease, spread, and I found that for every pleasure derived from, for example, an Isaac Babel short story, there was the pain of a one million years in the life of Ivan Denisovich, a deceptively thin volume that stole what felt like three decades of my life, which is about right on one level, but wrong on the level that I happened to be inhabiting. And that's without saying anything about Dr. fucking Zhivago. So it was counterintuitive to pick up this collection of Tolstoy short stories, but there were two things that brought me to them. The aforementioned translators. I had read so many good things about their work, how they were saving Russian literature for a generation of readers and other such hyperbole, that whether or not I believed it, I couldn't ignore it. And then there's the simple and shameful fact that a person who loves books cannot stop buying books. That person doesn't need a reason to buy a book. Rather, he or she needs a reason, usually a compelling one, not to buy a book. Accumulation is the default mode, which is why I bought a collection of Nikolai Leskov short stories at around the same time. My first step back into the abyss was to revisit the site of my initial pain, flipping the pages till they stopped at the death of Ivan Ilyich. And as I was reading it, I was surprised. I liked it. Very much. In fact, I loved it. As varied as the classics are, there's one thing that, in my experience, unites them. Whether it's the Odyssey or, in this case, the death of Ivan Ilyich, a classic work of fiction reads as though it's contemporary. And while you could say that both of the examples I just gave are contemporary works because they were recently translated, that's not the whole story. What I mean is that these books are ageless. They never get old. I keep expecting some dust to have accumulated on the surface, some barrier that needs to be broken through in order to begin to appreciate, even enjoy classics. But what you find in works of enduring greatness is that they not only have no dust, they're actually in high-def plasma. It's not the past you're reading, it's the past, present, and future. 
So it was for me with the death of Ivan Ilyich. As I was reading it, I wondered how I had ever so disliked the story the first time, and how alive it was on second reading. Which leads me to agree. Pavir and Volokonsky, you have saved Russian literature, at least for one member of this generation. This, of course, is not to deny Tolstoy his credit. I could wax poetic about the death of Ivan Ilyich and the equally amazing The Kreutzer Sonata, but the focus today is on the devil. The devil, as with a number of other Tolstoy stories, begins with a quote taken from the Gospels, in this case, Matthew 5.28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. In Ivan Ilyich and the Kreutzer Sonata, Tolstoy takes a keen interest in hubris, jealousy, the folly of self-delusion, and their consequences. And with the mention in the epigraph from Matthew of that very 70s word, member, one senses that Tolstoy might be on similar terrain in The Devil. And so it turns out that he was. The story centers on Evgeny Irtenev. Evgeny is a golden boy, smart, handsome, probably tall, generous, conscientious. Actually, let's just let Leo do the talking. He was 26, of medium height, strongly built, with muscles developed by gymnastics, a sanguine man with a bright flush all over his cheeks, with bright teeth and lips, and with not thick but soft and curly hair. His only physical flaw was nearsightedness, which he had developed in himself by wearing eyeglasses, and now he could no longer go without a pince-nez, which was already making little creases above the curve of his nose. That is how he was physically, while his spiritual image was such that the more one knew him, the more one loved him. His mother had always loved him most of all, and now, after her husband's death, she concentrated on him not only all of her affection, but all her life. But it was not only his mother who loved him like that, His comrades at high school and the university had always felt not only love, but also a particular respect for him. He always had the same effect on all strangers. It was impossible not to believe what he said, impossible to suspect any deceit or falseness given such an open, honest face, and above all, eyes. At the beginning of the story, Evgeny is faced with a question, what to do with the family estate? His father, who is recently deceased, has left the state, a farm in the country, to his wife and two sons, Evgeny and his brother, but due to the father's mismanagement, the farm is in ruins and tied to a load of debt. Evgeny decides to buy his brother's half of the farm and make a go of it. Part of him also looks upon the challenge as an opportunity to remake himself. It's an old story, moving from the vices of the city to the virtues of the country. Nonetheless, it's a pleasure to read Tolstoy tell it, for he knows it well, at least that part about Evgeny being a libertine. If Tolstoy was not especially famous for his youthful carousing and sexual indulgences, he was famous for keeping a diary of all of that and having his wife, Sophia, read that diary on the eve of their marriage. Perhaps as a kind of penance through literature then, or perhaps to show the impossibility of ever being able to act other than he did, Tolstoy has Evgeny rebirth himself in the country, and he does this through a vow of abstinence, which, okay, certainly Evgeny seemed to think it was great, at least in theory, but... But here it was the second month that he had been living in the country, and he decidedly did not know what to do. His involuntary abstinence began to have a bad effect on him. 
Should he go out of town for that? And where? How? This alone troubled Evgeny Ivanovich, and he was convinced that it was necessary that he needed it. It actually became a need for him, and against his will he followed every young woman with his eyes. There's that mention of the eyes again, the eyes that Matthew spoke of plucking out. They're leading Evgeny astray. He can't help it. Abstinence is inhuman, inhumane. The only question, then, was what to do about it. Evgeny knew one thing, and that was that he should not, under any circumstances, take up with a girl from the village where his estate was located. I mean, everyone knows that. But, in the end, that was just another rule, and if he can break one, the rule of abstinence, surely he can break another. So Evgeny comes to contract Danila, a foreman on his farm, to arrange an assignation for him, something to take place in the shadows of the threshing barn. Evgeny's not too particular. Any dream will do. And with this, enter Stepanida. In a white embroidered apron, a reddish-brown woolen skirt, and a bright red kerchief, barefoot, fresh, firm, beautiful, she stood there and smiled timidly. So Evgeny's pince-nez falls off his nose, but who wouldn't get hot and heavy for a girl in an embroidered apron and reddish-brown woolen skirt? In seriousness, though, who wouldn't? Not Evgeny. What was meant to be a scratch for an itch ends up making the itch much worse. Were that the only concern in Evgeny's life, he'd probably make do, but there's pressure coming from another side. His mother has moved on to the farm and has proposed that Evgeny get married. Being young and determinedly idealistic, with one small exception, Evgeny embraces the idea of marriage and quickly finds a girl. Liza is her name. She's not Evgeny's mother's choice, she's not wealthy or particularly attractive, and she appears frail even in her youth, but she is utterly devoted to Evgeny, so bound to his person and thoughts that she can seem to see into that soul of his which he is so concerned with cultivating. And it is for this devotion that Evgeny loves her. With Liza in the picture, then, the meetings with Stepanita are going to cease, right? Sure, Evgeny thinks. Just one more visit to the threshing barn. And maybe just one more after that. And then really promise one more. Then another. And so on. Evgeny's convinced himself each meeting will be the last. The girl means nothing to him, but the reader knows better. Time passes. Evgeny marries Liza. And there's a baby. Only, it's not Liza who has the baby. It's Stepanita. And though Stepanita is married, and has been this whole time, there is a strong suspicion in the village that Evgeny is the father. Evgeny hears these rumors, but they don't bother him. The baby could be his, but he'll just send Stepanita some cash, and that should signal an end to things. Although by this point, the reader knows there is no end to things where the entanglement of Evgeny and Stepanita is concerned. Back on the estate, things seem to be going well for Evgeny. The debts are being paid off, his own wife is progressing through her pregnancy, true, his mother and mother-in-law are hanging around, and Tolstoy takes great pleasure in describing Liza's mother, who can complain about anything from windows without awnings to her preference for fresh over boiled cream. But even well into her pregnancy, the frail Liza continues to dote on Evgeny, and that's making everything fine for him. For a while, even Stepanita is not in the frame. But things can only go this way for so long. As the family prepare for the birth of the child, Evgeny arranges for the expansion of the housekeeping staff, and someone familiar is drafted in. You'll know her by her embroidered apron and reddish-brown woolen skirt, and to Evgeny's eyes, she's looking as good as ever. This time, with everything happening so close to the house, Liza senses impending danger, and Evgeny arranges for Stepanita to be assigned to another duty, which is great, because Evgeny figures 
that will put everything in the past. Of course, in this story, putting things in the past means bringing them to the present. And once again, it's on, with Evgeny taking tremendous risks, openly pursuing Stepanita, not only to the threshing barn, but all over the estate. A little earlier, he might have run into her in the woods. Now, however, it was impossible, in the sight of the other women, for her to go back to him in the woods. But despite his awareness of this impossibility, he stood for a long time behind a hazel bush at the risk of attracting the attention of the other women. Of course, she did not turn back, but he stood there for a long time, and, my God, with such a lovely picture of her in his imagination. And this happened not once, but five or six times, and grew stronger and stronger. She had never seemed so attractive to him, and not merely attractive. She had never possessed him so fully. He felt that he was losing his own will, was becoming almost insane. Evgeny is having his moment of realization, which is great, although at this point his obsession is too deeply ingrained for it to matter. And on top of that, he's involved too many people in this calamity to contain the oncoming damage. What Evgeny does next is in the best tradition of Greek drama. He takes an action, in keeping with his character, to drive himself away from trouble, and only ends up making everything much worse. The reader sympathizes with him, with the suffering and knowing Liza, and with almost everyone except Evgeny's mother-in-law. And this brings up one of the great pleasures of reading Tolstoy. That's the cast of characters. In this short story, we have the triangle of Evgeny, Stepanida, and Liza. We have a mother and mother-in-law. We have a dissolute brother, a late-arriving fool of an uncle, the foreman, Danila, Stepanida's husband, a soldier who is often out of town but does come back now and then, Every character in this story is so damn ripe. It reminds me of those overfilled scenes by the Russian painter Ilya Repin, R-E-P-I-N. Take a look at his works, like The Religious Procession or St. Nicholas of Mira, to get an idea. How many authors fail to conjure one decent character in a novel? And here Tolstoy creates nearly a dozen in the space of a short story. People have said plenty about Tolstoy before, and they'll say plenty after but one description particularly stands out. It's courtesy of Viktor Shklovsky, a mid-20th century literary theorist. He describes Tolstoy as a writer who brings back the specificity and therefore the life of the everyday. And here he quotes an entry from Tolstoy's diary to make a point. As I was walking around dusting things off in my room, I came to the sofa. For the life of me, I couldn't recall whether I had already dusted it off or not. Since these movements are habitual and unconscious, I felt that it was already impossible to remember it. If I had in fact dusted the sofa and forgotten that I had done so, i.e., if I had acted unconsciously, then this is tantamount to not having done it at all. If someone had seen me doing this consciously, then it might have been possible to restore this in my mind. If, on the other hand, no one had been observing me, or observing me only unconsciously, if the complex life of many people takes place entirely on the level of the unconscious, then it's as if this life had never been. 29th February, 1897. February 29th. What a guy. What a calendar. Getting back to the point, though, in Shklovsky's view, the value of art is to bring that fading world, the unconsidered, automatic, even automated life, back to the surface. And Tolstoy does this. He brings the familiar and generally overlooked parts of our life back to the surface, by making them strange. He does not call a thing by its name. That is, he describes it as if it were perceived for the first time, 
while an incident is described as if it were happening for the first time. In addition, he forgoes the conventional names of the various parts of a thing, replacing them instead with the names of corresponding parts in other things. It is Shklovsky's view that no writer accomplishes the act of renewing the world better than Tolstoy, and I would say that any reader of Tolstoy will immediately recognize this as a fact. But where Shklovsky focuses on how Tolstoy renews the physical world, I felt the sense of renewal strongest in Tolstoy's depiction of the people who occupy that world. Each character in this short story, The Devil, has elements of the archetypal. There's the idealistic youth, the overprotective mother, the know-it-all in-law, yet Tolstoy shows us all kinds of new things about these types, and in so doing makes them memorable individuals. He does this in a voice that can sometimes sound gossipy, and this is undoubtedly one of the reasons why it's so entertaining. While there's tons more to say about the virtues of Tolstoy's writing, what I wish to convey, first and foremost, is the excitement of reading his work. Everything is in his stories. That's how I'd put it. Tolstoy creates worlds, and though his stories are comparatively short, the reader finds them to be ever-expanding. To be given such a perspective in 50 or 60 pages, that's a gift. If you've ever thought of reading Tolstoy, but are put off by the doorstoppers he has produced, I'd highly recommend this great collection of his shorter works. Thank you, Leo Tolstoy. You've brought me back to 19th century Russian literature, and I'm all in. Next up on Burning Books will be a review of Robert Coover's baseball, or is it really about baseball, novel, the Universal Baseball Association, Inc., J. Henry Waugh prop. That's all in the title. Burning Books is part of the Latopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes, subscribe, and reach me there via the email the show button, all by going to latopia.com, spelled the way it sounds, and following the link to Burning Books. I also enjoy getting your tweets, nasty and nice, at Burning Books Pod. My thanks to Hakan Osgan for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So, let's start with the easiest. Teşekkürler. To Peter Cox, executive producer of the program. First word is vitamins. It's vitamins, oh my god. And as always, go Jays. Hey.